0: This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, sitting in for Terry Gross. Our show today is dedicated to Doc Watson, who was one of America's most revered folk musicians. He was born 100 years ago today. He died in 2012. In his prime, Doc Watson was considered the finest flat picker in the U.S. Folklorist Ralph Rinsler, who discovered him, was quoted in Watson's New York Times obit as saying, quote, Watson is single-handedly responsible for the extraordinary increase in acoustic flat-picking and finger-picking guitar performance. His flat-picking style has no precedent in earlier country music. Unquote. Watson was born in North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains. When he was about one year old, an eye infection left him blind. As an adult musician, for about 15 years, he toured and performed with his son Merle, In 1985, Merle was killed in a tractor accident. Doc Watson organized an annual music festival in North Carolina in his honor, known as MerleFest. We're going to hear the interview Terry recorded with Doc Watson in 1988, but we're going to start with a couple of songs from the concert he recorded on Fresh Air in 1989. He brought with him guitarist Jack Lawrence, who was his longtime music partner.
1: I want to welcome both of you to Fresh Air. And Doc Watson, can I ask you to introduce the first song?
0: Thank you, Terry. I think we'll do
2: one that Merle and I, my son Merle and I, learned from John Hurt. (laughs) A good old tune called Make Me Down a Pallet on Your Floor. ¶¶ Won't you make it down, make it soft and low? And then maybe my good gal, she won't know. I'm going up the country through that sleet and snow. Going up the country through that sleet and snow. Yes, I'm going up the country through that sleet and snow. Ain't no telling just how far I'll go. Get my breakfast here and my dinner in Tennessee. Get breakfast here and dinner in Tennessee gonna get my breakfast here my dinner in tennessee told you i was coming so you better look for me make me down a pallet on your floor make me down a pallet on your floor honey won't you make it down make it soft and low and then maybe my good gal she won't know what do you think about it jack I like that notion right there Well, you know that I can't lay down on your bed Now, honey, I can't lay down on your bed No, baby, I can't lay down across that pretty bed Cause my good woman, she might kill me dead And don't you let my good gal catch you here Hey, don't you let my good gal catch you here if you do, she may shoot you She might cut and stop you too Ain't no tellin' what that gal might do Make me down a pallet on your floor Make me down a pallet on your floor Honey, won't you make it down? Make it soft and low Then maybe my good gal, she won't know Sleeping my back and shoulders tired <clears throat> the way i've been sleeping my back and shoulders tired yeah the way i've been sleeping my back and shoulders tired i think i'll turn and try sleeping on my side make me down a pallet on your floor make me down a pallet on your floor honey won't you make it down make it soft and low Then maybe my good gal, she won't know Let's play some country counterpoint, son Make me down a pallet on your floor Make me down a pallet on your floor Honey, make it over Close behind that door Make it where your good man will never go All right. Guitar uh, straps will squeak, Jack. That's the way that's the way (laughs) that's the way it works. Here's a little tune about an old boy that excuse me, that decided he's gonna leave home and learn to travel. And he found a pretty little girl and got married and got two for the price of one. And I'll let the song tell you the rest of the tale. It's called Give Me Back My Fifteen Cents. I left my home in Tennessee And I thought I'd learned to travel then I met with a pretty little gal, and soon we played the devil. I loved that gal and she loved me, and I thought we'd live together. But then we tied that fatal knot and now I'm gone forever. Gimme back my fifteen cents, gimme back my money. Gimme back my fifteen cents, and I'll go home to my Yeah, let me hear your opinion. 15 cents to the preacher man and a dollar for the paper then dear old mother-in-law moved in and lordy what a caper i fiddled a tune for her one day and she called me a joker then that old sound got mad at me and hit me with the poker give me back my 15 cents give me back my money give me back my 15 cents and i'll go home to mammy town and I worked on the farm but there was no way to suit them they're both so dead burn mean to me somebody ought to shoot them I'm tired of looking at my mother-in-law I'd like to see my granny gonna leave the state of Arkansas and go back home to mammy give me back my 15 cents give me back my money give me back my 15 cents and I'll go home to mammy
0: Doc Watson, singing and playing guitar, along with guitarist Jack Lawrence, recorded in our studio in 1989. Today would have been Doc Watson's 100th birthday. We'll hear more of his Fresh Air concert later. The year before that concert, Watson joined Terry for an interview. She asked him about how being blind affected his life.
1: I've read you say that if you weren't blind, you don't think you would have ever gone on the road, and I wasn't sure how to interpret that.
2: I wouldn't have because uh, of exactly what I was talking about. I would rather have a job where I could go home at night. I'd have played music, of course. There's no doubt about that because I think you're born with uh, music or whatever uh, talent that comes out front in your blood, as the old timers used to say, and you just couldn't help but pick first time a guitar came along, you'd learn it. But it would have been a hobby. I'd like to have been a carpenter or an electrician or something kind of work like that, a mechanic, if I could see. I can do rough carpenter work anyway.
1: But didn't your father make the first banjo that you played?
2: Yeah, he did. That was in the summer of 1934. Uh, made my first little stringed instrument. I had a harmonica before that. But uh, Dad showed me a few of the old-time uh, Frailing or Clawhammer banjo-style tunes, and one day he brought it to me and put it in my hands and said, Son, I want you to learn to play this thing real well. Some of these days we'll get you a better one. He said, uh, might help you get through the world.
1: And what was it like for you the first time you got the banjo into your hands? What did you do with it?
2: Uh, I don't, you know, I really don't remember. I remember how I felt, but I don't remember hardly what it was like learning the the first tunes. It was kind of hard for Dad to show me because I couldn't see his hands. And it was a little tough. But he finally got across to me... uh, how to do the licks on the banjo, and how to note the thing. And I, I fi- figured out where the notes were because it was fretless, and you could slide along with your fingers, and finally you'd come to the right one, you know, and you found out how to get there without missing them.
1: <laughs> so you were really pretty self-taught.
2: For the most part, yes, I was. The guitar, absolutely, I was self-taught.
1: How did you get your first guitar?
2: By pulling the crosscut saw One spring, my dad told my youngest brother and I, boys, if you'll cut all those dead chestnut, uh, small dead chestnuts down along the road and around the edge of the field there. You can sell it for pulpwood to the tannery. And we went at it, and we cut a couple of big truckloads. It didn't make us a mint of money, but it made me enough to buy me a, a good little guitar from, well, I thought it was good at the time, from Sears Roebuck. And my younger brother ordered him a suit of clothes.
1: <laughs> now, considering that your early instruments were, were homemade banjos and a mail order guitar did you ever get really obsessed with the quality of instruments that you were playing some musicians just play what they have and others get really obsessed with having instruments that are just right for them or custom made for them
2: i was fairly contented with what i had i never had had my hands on a good guitar uh... Back in those days, and didn't for years, the first good guitar that I got hold of that I would have considered much better than my mail-order box was a Martin guitar that Richard Green used to have a little music store under his, he had a boarding house or an inn there in Boone. And I went in there one day with that little mail-order thing and he said, why don't you let me help you get you a good guitar? And I said, gosh, it costs too much. And he said, I'll tell you what I can do. I can get you a, a good Martin D-18 that will be a price that you can afford, and I'll take the payments down to $5 a month. And I couldn't beat that. I paid it off quicker than that, but I couldn't beat that with a stick. And at that time, I was playing at the little fruit stand and a couple of a little bean market they had in Boone and making me a few shekels on Saturday, having a good time of picking, and I paid for the guitar that summer. He got me that thing at his cost, and it cost 90 bucks, and I paid for it. Oh, Lord, I was proud of that guitar. But in all all truth, compared to my guitar now, it was like fretting a fence. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hard to play.
1: (laughs) I guess it's uh, almost good in a way to get used to something like that, because it makes it seem so much easier when you get a good guitar. Oh,
2: it really does. And when I got into the folk revival in the 60s, I ran into people who could uh, set a guitar action up to where you could play it and I came onto another Martin along about that time. Played a Gibson at first on the road, borrowed. Then I came into another Martin, and the action was brought down to where you could play it.
1: It was really during the folk revival that you started to become nationally known. Um, I think you'd been playing um, dances and and you know playing playing. I played rockabilly
2: music through the the 50s, and played an electric guitar, Les Paul.
1: Oh, I see, this really interests me. You were playing rockabilly and an electric guitar.
2: Mm-hmm, and rockabilly I- and old pop standards mm. with, with an old boy named Jack Williams. Jack had a little group together, and when he heard me pick, he said, Buddy, I want you to pick with me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, the way I understand it, Ralph Rinsler, who was working at the Smithsonian Institute, came down looking for um, traditional Southern musicians, came down your way and, and heard about you.
2: He was looking for Clarence Ashley and found him, Clarence Tom Ashley, and I had played music with Tom on a few land sales and a few little shows here and there, and Ralph came over, and when he heard me, he persuaded me over my better judgment at the time that I had something to offer in the way of entertainment in the folk revival, so I jumped in there with both hands, I reckon, thinking, well, if I fail at it, it won't mean I didn't try, so... Uh, I'm here, and Ralph was a member of the Green Bar Boys at the time.
1: Now, um, you had been playing, uh, you know, electric guitar. Did you have to switch over to mm-hmm. acoustic yeah. in order to make it in the folk revival? Yeah,
2: switch back to the acoustic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Lord, if you'd have took an electric guitar on the stage <laughs> on some of those festivals, they would have booed you off the stage if you were supposed to be. They call, used to call me ethnic until I found out I knew a few other tunes other than the old hand-me-downs, you know, the ballads and the good old tunes that, I cut my teeth on. I think I really shocked some people in some of the clubs when I got my foot in the door. Ralph says, now, when you get your foot in the door, you can expand out and play a little of the other music that you've played over the years, but stick strictly to traditional music, the good old ethnic stuff, till you get started. So that's what I did. I kind of deceived people a little, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to play something that um, was recorded by Ralph Rinsler, Uh, I mean, Ralph Rinsley recorded it. You were performing. In in my living room.
2: (laughs) In my living room, yeah.
1: And and, and this is a recording. It was from the early 1960s, and this is Everyday Dirt. Tell us a little bit about the song before we hear this.
2: A fellow, David McCarn, uh, was uh, living in a a mill town, Gastonia, North Carolina, and he heard about some recording sessions going on down, I think it was Knoxville, Tennessee, and he probably slung his guitar over his back knowing how those poor old boys fared. He and a fellow... Uh, Howard, I've forgotten his uh, given name, went over to Knoxville and recorded a bunch of things, and Everyday Dirt was one of the songs that happened in our little record collection when I was a little boy. And those words are just, oh, you know, they're automatic. I didn't even have to think about the lyrics on that. I did have to work at picking it. and I learned it off the old 78 record that McCarn recorded.
3: Okay,
1: so from the early 1960s, this is my guest, Doc Watson. ¶¶
2: John come home, all in a wonder He rattled at the door just like thunder Who is that Mr. Henley cried Tis my husband you must hide Then John sat down by the fireside A weeping and up that chimney he got to peeping There he saw that poor old soul Setting up a straddle of the pot rack pole And John built on a rousing fire just to suit his own desire His wife
3: got out with a free goodwill Don't
2: do that for the man you'll kill Then John ranged up and down he fetched him like When a dog had catched him he blacked his eyes And then did better, kicked him out right on his setter then his wife, she crawled in under the bed, and he pulled her out by the hair of the head. And when I'm gone, remember then, he kicked her where the chinges had been.
1: Recruited in the early 1960s, that's my guest, Doug Watson. How did you learn how to pick that way? We, we found out that you were self-taught, but it seems like it would be really hard to teach yourself an intricate style like well,
2: that. Well, by listening to the old records, you could hear, after you got familiarized with the instrument you could hear what strings they were hitting on and what chord they were playing in just by the sound after all music is sound and i think if anybody learns the guitar properly they shouldn't as soon as they can get to where they can't stop looking at the neck and play without doing that unless it's something really hard that you're uh get first getting into you know you need to memorize the distances and the jumps on the neck well uh as I said, music is sound, and uh, I could tell what the guy was doing, the little slide licks on there where he goes down to the, a certain note and then jumps back up there. All the chords are sound to me. It's like you reading something once I was familiar with the guitar.
1: Once you put down the electric guitar for the acoustic guitar, how often did you pick up the electric guitar again?
2: Uh, very seldom, after I got into to folk music uh, and into the revival and began to play a little jobs at coffee houses I don't I I seldom, if ever picked up the electric guitar
1: do you miss it at all
2: no not I love a good electric guitar that one wasn't all that good it was a a second actually it was a Les Paul Gibson but it really was a second the neck on it wasn't all that good I thought it was a great thing when I first got hold of it. it had a beautiful sound but but there's some that are so much better now than it was uh sound wise you know and as to play that I, occasionally, I picked up a Chet Adkins model, electric Gibson, the other day, beautiful hollow body.
0: Oh Lord, now I was interested in that thing. <laughs> Doc Watson recorded in 1988. We'll hear more of his interview with Terry Gross and his 1989 Fresh Air concert after a break. Here's a song from that performance. Today is the centennial of Watson's birth. I'm David B. Cooley, and this is Fresh Air.
2: I'd like to do a Uh, a little tune here that I used to hear Brownie and Sonny do Uh, it's a blues that everybody's had at one time or another it's called Stranger Blues two, three, four well I'm a stranger here I just blowed in your town Yes, I'm a stranger here I just blowed in your town And just because I'm a stranger You don't have to dog me around Well, sometimes I wonder why Some people treat a stranger so Sometimes I wonder why Some people treat a stranger so Can't find a place to stay I just go from door to door Well, I'm a stranger here I just float in your town Yes, I'm a stranger here
0: Our show today is dedicated to Doc Watson, the revered folk guitarist and singer who died in 2012. Today would have been his 100th birthday. Watson grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina and in his prime was considered the greatest guitar flat picker. Let's get back to the concert he recorded in our studio in 1989 with guitarist Jack Lawrence. Mm -hmm.
2: When the late Jimmy Rogers uh, did his last sessions in the early 30s, he did some music that sat right in the edge of the big band music of that day. Well, here's a pretty little teen old Jim recorded called Blue-Eyed Jane. <laughs> the sweetest girl in the world lives in my hometown. We fell in love like turtle doves While the moon was shining down I asked her then, I asked her when The wedding bells would ring And she said, oh dear, it seems so strange For this to happen here She is my sugar powder All to me she is the sweetest gal I love her so my blue-eyed jane and when the sun goes down and the shadows creeping over town she meets me in the lane my blue-eyed jane Pretty Jack? Listen here, Janie dear, I've come to say farewell, sweetheart, you know I love you so much more than there's words to tell, but I must go away today, honey, won't you come with me, cause I'm gonna be blue, missing you. Longing every day for you, my blue-eyed Jane Oh, to me you are the sweetest thing I love you so, my blue-eyed Jane And when the sun goes down and the shadows creeping over town Please meet me in the lane, my blue-eyed Jane And when the sun goes down and the shadows creeping over town, then I'll come home to you,
0: my blue eyed Jane. That's guitarist and singer Doc Watson and guitarist Jack Lawrence recorded in our studio in 1989. Let's get back to Terry's 1988 interview with Doc Watson.
1: Once you went on the road during the Folk Revival, now you weren't used to traveling. There must have uh, been a lot you learned. had to learn how to do. Did you have a business manager to help you out with bookings? and?
2: Ralph Rensler did uh, the bookings between he and Manny Greenhill of Folklore Productions. But Ralph traveled a lot with me, and if he didn't, when I went go to New York to work in the city, uh, I came by Trailways bus. Someone would always meet me at the Port Authority, and take me over to Ralph's apartment. I worked lots of times. I'd work at Gertie's Folk City a week or two weeks at a time, doing either opening act or uh, just playing the job straight there. Uh, it was scary. I was as green as a green apple as far as the city. Country boy? Yeah, really oh, yeah, up, sure. As the old-timers used to say, a hay seed for sure. But uh, the scary part finally... Uh, and the adventure finally got over with and that road uh well it became a job
1: <laughs> yeah I music I can see what music you mean.
2: a good audience i love
1: um you know i think there's always clubs who not maybe not many but there's always some clubs willing to take advantage of of a performer and i would guess that someone uh who w- was blind was a more likely target if they didn't have people who were watching out for them would you ever ever have any problems with that i was
2: sure was glad when my son Merle started on the road with me because if we went to a place and they didn't treat me too good, uh, Dad, we won't come back here anymore. And that was the end of it. I'd tell Manny, I'd tell Mr. Greenhill, don't, don't book that anymore. That was the end of it. We, uh, we, you know, we didn't hit too many places that they weren't really decent to us, but once in a great while there, of course I won't call any names because we're on nationwide radio, <laughs> but we were in a few places where they treated you like pieces of used equipment. And that was the end of playing there. We just didn't do, it, didn't do it again. That's the best thing you can do, you know, is not tolerate that. Just move away.
1: You mentioned your son Merle. Did you teach him how to play guitar?
2: No. Uh, Merle didn't show any interest in the guitar until he was 15. I was on my first concert tour, a solo concert tour that spring. And about middle ways of it, Ralph called me and said, Doc, I've got some good news. And I said, well, lay it on me. And he said, uh, Merle has started playing the guitar. His mother, Rosalie, started him on the guitar. She taught him his first chords and showed him how to play them and a little bit about timing, and he just took it and went with it. And we met John Hurt for the first time that same summer we went to the Berkeley Folk Festival, and Merle played backup guitar for me. He'd only been playing about three months. And he played backup guitar on the stage, and we met, When we met John Hurt, Merle was enthralled by John's finger style on the guitar, and he he took that and added a few little notions of his own, and that's where Merle's uh, picking style, finger style, came from.
1: So he never felt that he had to work hard to differentiate his style from your style.
2: Oh, Merle, uh, he once in a while he'd ask me for some pointers on a melody to a song or something, but Merle played his very own thing on the guitar. I don't think he even ever asked me how to hold the pick. He probably looked at the way I held it. But I never really sat down and and taught him how you get this note or that note. I just played a song and sang it, and he jumped in there and learned the lead to it, like Summertime, for instance. Uh, I had heard a version of that. And I said, Merle, what do you think about learning this? And I played the thing about halfway through, and he said, Gosh, I don't know, it sounds like it'd be hard. And so help me, in five minutes, he could play the lead to it. <laughs> and when we did the recording, I'll, I'll say this about it, and then we'll move on. When we did the recording, uh, the, the producer, Jack Clement, came running through and said, Boys, don't touch it. It was the first take. He says, That, that one's the way it should be. And Merle said, Well, it was spontaneous. And he said, Dad, I'll have to go back and memorize what I did. Those things happen in the studio a lot of the time. You know, after you learn a song, you'll hear notes that you just reach for and they're there. And you play things that you hadn't played before.
1: Yeah, I've noticed with a lot of musicians that uh, they, they, they meet all these people who have memorized their licks and they have no idea what they played. <laughs> they were just being spontaneous uh, and everybody else goes and memorizes it. Um, when, when your son Merle died, was it hard for you to go back on the road afterwards?
2: Uh, <clears throat> if you'll pardon uh, a little intimacy here, I'll tell you something that happened or I wouldn't have. Uh, between the time he was killed and his funeral, I dreamed I was in a, a dark desert and it was so hot you couldn't breathe. And the sand was pulling me down like if you were in quicksand. And that big strong hand reached back and said, Come on, Dad, you can make it. And he brought me, led me out to where it was cool, but there was a coo- uh, sunny, but there was a cool breeze. And I woke up and I thought, well, I'll try. And I took up the last job on that particular tour that we'd canceled. And my friend Jack Lawrence had been working some while Merle was off the road with us for quite a while. And Jack stayed on as the other guitarist. And I'm kind of glad I did. If I had stayed off the road a month, I never would have come back. It was so hard, you know. You well, no, you you couldn't know Terry, but it was really hard to go back out there without him.
1: But I guess that dream kind of gave you permission and a way was, to do it. I believe
0: it. it was godsend, I think, mm-hmm, the dream mm-hmm. was. We're listening back to Terry's 1988 interview with Doc Watson. Today would have been his 100th birthday. We'll hear more of his Fresh Air interview and concert after a break. This is Fresh Air.
2: This
1: message comes from NPR sponsor First Republic Bank. With First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who will sit down and learn about you and your goals. You're then connected with specialists and solutions you may not have considered. Isn't it time you align yourself with a bank that believes in you and your future success? Learn more at firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. You know, um, I've been using the word virtuoso (laughs) today. And I, I, I would guess that one of the problems of being a virtuoso is that people want to hear you play fast all the time, to hear you really, you know, do the most difficult stuff that you can do.
2: Well, yeah, a lot of people do get into that, but usually uh if you have a big audience, you can't really take requests from the st- uh when you're on stage, so you just uh program your set and you season it with enough of that to keep the the people who love the flashy things satisfied. <laughs> and and kind of do a sensible set. Uh, I don't mind it if people like to hear the flat picking and and does give you a boost to get a lot of yells and whistles and screams from the audience, you know, but I love the good solid music too, and most of the audience do, really. they When it comes right down to it, they they like to hear you, the, the whole scope of the thing. The, being, being accused of being a virtuoso doesn't bother me as bad as people trying to put me on a pedestal, especially when they're my own age.
1: What do you mean by putting you on a pedestal?
2: Well, they act like you're a god or something, you know. Lord, I'm just people. <laughs> like everybody else, I do play the guitar, but I had to work awful hard at it to learn what I know.
1: Can I ask you a question that I hope you don't mind me asking, and if you do, <laughs> don't answer it. <laughs> a, a lot of performers who are blind wear dark glasses when they perform, and that's something you've never done.
2: I don't know why I always hated... uh used to have a good bit of light perception. It doesn't bother me now because most of it's gone... But the reflection off sunglasses, you know, how it'll come in on the sides. I guess they make them now it won't do it. But boy, they used to try to get me to the wear them. I reckon they didn't like the way my eyes looked. Uh, a lot of people would say you ought to wear sunglasses. I hated them.
3: Uh-huh. I, wouldn't,
2: I wouldn't do it. And I, n- I just never have worn them. I don't know if the blind that, that wear them, their eyes look really abnormal or what. I, I don't know. I never did care to wear them, just didn't do it. Right. No particular reason except what I told you.
1: Yeah. One last thing, you know. There's a really nice recording from the early '60s of you and your wife singing together. Does she still sing? Do you ever sing together?
2: She doesn't sing anymore. or play anymore. The tragedy of losing Merle Terry has just about undone her. She does the the office work there at home, but she's not Rosalie anymore. Bless her little heart. She, I don't know. Sometimes I, I just want to cry. And, uh, you know, especially when I'm away from her, I do when I think about it. I try not to and try to encourage her what I can. It's a tough, uh, it's been tough on her and she can't seem to get over the the loss. The grief really has her yet.
1: Yeah, I can understand. Um, But, oh, I I regret we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming, for talking with us about music, and um, thank you very much. (laughs) I'll
2: guarantee you, it's been a pleasure. Jack, I think a a good old train song might be in order right here. Son, I remember that song over there that uh, Brother Jimmy and Jet wrote. And I'm going to plug an album right here. I ain't supposed to do this, but it's on an album I did for Sugar Hill called Riding the Midnight Train, a bluegrass album, my first endeavor on pure bluegrass. Greenville Trussell is a song for the train buffs that love the good old steam engine sounds and all that good... I remember when I went to school at Raleigh. There was a train went by every 20 minutes on an average, and this song makes me think of those days. As a boy, how in wonderment and joy I'd watch the trains as they go by, and the whistle's lonesome sound you could hear for miles around as they rolled across that Greenville trussel high. But the whistles don't sound like they used to. Lately, not many trains go by. Hard times across this land mean no work for a railroad man, and the Greenville trestle now don't seem so high. Thank you, son. On the river bank, I'd stand with McCain-Pole in my hand And watch the freight trains up against the sky That black smoke trailing back as they moved along the track That runs across that Greenville trussel high But the whistles don't sound like they used to Lately not many trains go by Hard times across this land Mean no work for a railroad man And the Greenville Trussell Now don't seem so high When the lonesome whistles whined, I'd get ramblin' on my mind. Lord, I wish they still sounded that way. As I turned to head for home, Lord, she'd rumble low and long. Toward the sunset at the close of day. But the whistles don't sound like they used to. Late day, not many trains go by Hard times across this land me no work for a railroad man And the Greenville Trussell now don't seem so high No, the Greenville Trussell now don't seem so
0: high Guitarist and singer Doc Watson along with guitarist Jack Lawrence, recorded in the Fresh Air studio in 1989. Today would have been Watson's 100th birthday. A forthcoming tribute album titled I Am a Pilgrim, Doc Watson at 100, is scheduled to be released April 28th. Here's the title track from it, featuring Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal.
4: I am a pilgrim And a stranger Traveling through this Where's the land? I've got a home in That yonder city, good Lord And it's not Not made by hand I've got a mother A sister and a brother this way before and i am determined
0: Coming up, John Powers reviews season two of the HBO drama series Perry Mason. This is Fresh Air. The fictional lawyer Perry Mason was created by novelist Earl Stanley Gardner in 1933, but achieved his greatest fame during the TV series that ran on CBS from 1957 to 1966. There's a new version of Perry Mason out from HBO, starring Matthew Rhys, and its second season begins on Monday. Our critic at large, John Powers, says the show is getting better as it goes along, but still leaves him asking one big question.
3: Movies and TV have always been notorious for taking literary works and then making adaptations that flatten them out. But lately, ambitious writers and directors have been trying to do just the opposite— They take larger-than-life genre heroes like Batman, Sherlock Holmes, and James Bond, then seek to invest their stories with a new richness and emotional depth. One who's gotten the smartening up treatment is Perry Mason, best known to most Americans as the unbeatable defense attorney played on TV with glowering self-assurance by Raymond Burr. When HBO's first installment of its Perry Mason reboot came out in 2020, It replaced this triumphalist hero with a scuffed-up Perry, whose origin story bore all the hallmarks of today's prestige TV, from its embrace of long-form storytelling to a pricey, production-designed evocation of 1930s Los Angeles. The characters had been modernized, too. Played by Juliet Rylance, Della Street went from being Perry's easy-on-the-eyes secretary to his closeted lesbian assistant, who knows the law better than her boss. Swaggering private eye Paul Drake was a cop, played by Chris Chalk, who paid the price of being honest and black. As for Perry, that's a terrific Matthew Rhys. He was bitter, depressive, hot-headed, two-fisted, hard-drinking, and only rarely brilliant in the courtroom. Although season one was glum and saddled with a clunky plot, all the retooling made it reasonably engrossing for old Mason fans like me. But it left me wondering about the whole enterprise. Would the second season deepen things enough to justify completely making over a popular character? This time out, Perry and his team represent two young Mexican-Americans charged with murdering Brooks McCutcheon, the unlikable son of an oil tycoon. Their search for evidence takes them to all parts of the city, from the Latino shantytown where the accused live, to the fancy seaside gambling den run by the murder victim, from black neighborhoods struggling with the Great Depression, to the sunlit mansion of a woman oil baron, Camilla Nygard, played by always excellent Hope Davis, who speaks in epigrams. Along the way, Perry, Della, and Paul, who's now an ex-cop, all face situations that could leave them ruined, if not dead. And in different ways, they all bump up against the noirish realities of a Chinatown-era L.A., where law enforcement serves the rich. Here the cynical D.A. Hamilton Berger, that's Justin Kirk, explains to Perry how the legal system works. Don't you know what we're selling by now? There is no true justice, there's only the illusion of justice. The illusion of
4: justice.
2: The fantasy that keeps people believing that truth always prevails. Bad guys get caught, good guys put them away. Why are you the district attorney? Or uh,
0: are you just the illusion of the district attorney?
2: Because I'm the hero of that story. And as long as people still believe in justice and there's a system in place that looks like it works, I'm doing what the city pays me to do.
3: Now, the happy news is that this second season is clearly better than the first. The crime plot has more snap, and our heroes confront trickier moral issues. Harry's angry righteousness keeps bumping up against facts he doesn't like, but can't ignore. Paul gets sucked into deeds that may harm his own community, and the slightly saccharindella learns that when you're in the closet, you'd best be careful whom you get close to. As the clip suggests, the series offers a much darker and more complex vision of justice than you found in the old Perry Mason show or the original books by Earl Stanley Gardner. And yet, while the series complicates and diversifies the Perry Mason universe, the show is far less fun than the old Raymond Burr series. Even as it lures us in with the Perry Mason brand, it all but ignores the shark-like courtroom demeanor that made him less a lawyer than a legend. It lacks the inventiveness of Sherlock, a reboot that manages to update and deepen Conan Doyle's original yet still preserve all the things we love about Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps the whole idea of this series is to deconstruct the original, transforming Perry from a white male savior into a decent but tormented attorney who's just trying to get by. But it does raise the question of why the show's creators didn't simply come up with a whole new show, rather than throw away the one thing that gives the Perry Mason stories their alluring pop brio. A Perry who doesn't unmask the murderer in a courtroom showdown is like a Sherlock Holmes who doesn't find any clues or a James Bond who doesn't use his license to kill.
0: John Powers reviewed the TV series Perry Mason, which begins its second season Monday on HBO. On Monday's show, why police violence and misconduct so often go unpunished. We talk with Joanna Schwartz, UCLA law professor and author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. In her book, she examines the laws and policies that protect police and why reforms are so hard to implement. She also tells the stories of victims who sought justice. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Mike Villers. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Cooley.